You're listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. This is where we talk to people across Canada about the values and principles that inform the way they are thinking about society. We are talking together to promote a better public conversation. This is the first episode of our mini-series, Resilience in the Face of Adversity where we ask how the coronavirus health crisis reveals insights about the values that bind us together. This episode features me, Ashraf Rushdie, in conversation with Dr. Lita Cameron, a family doctor who has been a frontline worker in Hamilton, and John Malloy, a professor of public ethics and a former minister and member of the Legislative Assembly of Ontario. We will be talking about the value of service and public ethics in the context of the coronavirus health crisis. Thanks, Lita and John, for joining us to talk about the value of service in our response to coronavirus. Would you mind each briefly introducing yourselves? Sure. Uh, My name is Lita Cameron. I'm a family physician here working in Hamilton, Ontario. I work uh, as a primary care physician, mostly taking care of patients of all ranges, and then uh, do do special care with newborns in the hospital, as well as our newcomers and refugees at one of our volunteer-based clinics in the city. Sure. My name is John Malloy. I'm the director of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College, which is a college federated with Wilfrid Laurier University. I'm also a uh, professor of public ethics and teach in the uh, Christian Studies and Global Citizenship program that we offer there uh, in partnership with Laurier. Before that, uh, I was a member of provincial parliament and cabinet minister at uh, Queen's Park and spent 11 years there representing uh, the riding of Kitchener Centre. Thanks for joining us, John. So it's nice to have both of you here with us virtually recording our first podcast in a series that the Office of Public Affairs is launching about our response in Canada to uh, COVID-19. And wondering if uh, if we could begin by describing a little bit some of the difficulties that we've seen uh, Canadians facing, those that we're connected to through our different areas. John, do you mind taking us off? Sure. I think of two groups. Uh, I'm still, as a former MPP, still connected to our community and, and certainly Uh, those individuals who are homeless, those individuals who are struggling. Um, This has been a a monumentally difficult time. And just the idea of physical distancing, of social distancing, how do you do that when you're in a hostel or uh, uh, sleeping in uh, various friends' couches night after night? And then the other group that I I think of uh, that we certainly come in contact with, I think all of us do, are those frontline people. And, you know, obviously, Kudos to uh, frontline medical staff, and including my, my colleague here, but also those people who are, are working in the retail sector, those people who are collecting your garbage, those people who are providing uh, care to our elderly. I think they are people who are on the front lines and are putting their lives uh, at risk literally every day. And uh, they don't have that luxury of uh, sitting in a home office and Skyping with their students. Thanks, John. Lita, what are you seeing as a family physician? In terms of the the physicians, nurses, administrators, cleaning staff, everyone in the hospital providing care, it's just been a, a complete change in the way that we operate and we think that every day is posing a risk and every action that we do can have a ripple effect. And one thing that I've noticed and have experienced among speaking with my colleagues is just one concern that we all have is that we're a carrier without knowing it and that we may 
be be a, be distributing this virus among other people because we're in contact with patients that may or may not have the disease and that everyday anxiety and fear affects how we obviously function as clinics but then also our interaction with our patients to try to reduce risk as much as possible so as a primary care physician the way that our clinic is structured has changed substantially in order to reduce potential transmission provide care as best as we can through video or telephone consults and then in cases where patients actually do need to be seen we do bring them into the clinic but have certain strategies in place to reduce any potential risk to our staff and to the patient themselves so we've really reevaluated and and reoriented how we provide primary care Maybe we could carry on from that point. You had mentioned that there's this kind of environment of uh, kind of heightened anxiety and fear and a, and a growing concern amongst everyone who has to come into contact with, with others, basically, at this time. Um, how in that context, uh, that very kind of dangerous, we might say, situation, how is an ethic of service shaping the response of the healthcare system to this crisis? Like, how are we seeing uh, this kind of duty and and a desire to serve others still arising in the midst of this kind of chaotic um, uh, condition that we find ourselves in. I think what's been really quite impressive and moving for me as a as a clinician has just been this this rallying unity of vision that exists among all individuals working within the health sector. And I'm speaking specifically about the health sector, but I do know it exists in other sectors as well that there, we recognize that there is this universal force or impact that is having on our society and our community and our patients. And that has really rallied this collaborative and coherent approach to providing care with the motivation and the purpose of ensuring the well-being and safety of patients. And that is the underlying theme which influences all of the decisions that are being made. And the way that it's that ethic of service is being implemented is is as around that making decisions around what is urgent care, what can be deferred, and what is elective. So the way that medicine and care is being provided is shifted, and every patient's situation is reevaluated based on that model, with the whole purpose of of reducing uh, potential exposure and risk. The idea that our most vulnerable patients are often the ones that may or not may not be accessing care when they most need it. So strategies are put in place to be able to reach out to our homeless and our vulnerable patients. Certain structures are in place with groups of physicians, for example, in Hamilton that already work with the most vulnerable and they have strategies in place to be able to assess and treat at a much faster rate than maybe a general an individual that has the benefit of, of living in their home and that can self-isolate without difficulty. And, and I think also just the general sacrifice that people people feel to be able to say every day, I want to contribute to this process. I want to give in some way to be able to help others. Thanks, Lita. Now, John, you also served for many years as a minister in the Ontario government with many port- with various portfolios. How does a crisis like this generate a sense of purpose and mission among the public service? Well, I mean, it's an extraordinary time at Queen's Park and you know, you have to give a lot of credit to the leadership there, uh, not just the political leadership, but uh, that of the public service and certainly those that are involved in public health and making decisions about uh, how we need to, to steer this uh, healthcare ship so that it uh, meets this, this horrible crisis. Um, so it does bring people together. It becomes a lens. Uh, no matter where you're working, you're going to be thinking about how do you uh, uh, change what you're doing or modify what you're doing or perhaps put a hold on what you're doing 
in order to deal with uh, the crisis. So it's a very positive experience on one level, but these crises also unfortunately have, uh, uh, I guess, uh, the opposite of a silver lining. I don't know what that would be, a copper lining, a bronze lining. <laughs> um, the fact is that, that everyone is so transfixed, I imagine, on what's happening with COVID-19 that there are important things which are having to be put aside, which is totally understandable. But I also wonder if uh, there, there's a lot of time to think about what comes after. And I'm not simply talking about the mechanics. The mechanics are going to be very important. Do we wear masks? Uh, does one sector come back first? Does someone need to have a, uh, some kind of a health certificate in order to go back to work? I'm sure those discussions are going on. But it's what does the new post-COVID world look like? Uh, we spoke a few minutes ago about the challenges facing those uh, in low-wage jobs. Um, we talked about uh, health care for the homeless, for people who are uh, in crisis or on the margins. Um, there's a whole range of, of issues which I think have become so stark because of COVID-19. The fact that, uh, listen, we have some wonderful, wonderful facilities for seniors in our province, but we've also seen uh, a lot of uh, facilities that aren't, aren't living up to, to snuff. So how is this new world going to look? Uh, how are we going to treat seniors in the future? How are we going to treat precarious workers? Uh, what are we going to do about personal support workers who are paid uh, meager, uh, meager salaries or meager hourly wages? and uh, are on the front lines. And I'm hoping that we're going to see change, but that's going to require some, some folks thinking this through. And I guess that's the, the downside of a crisis is that you're thinking about what's happening now, which is totally understandable. You're thinking about some of those mechanics uh, around what happens next, but what's the long-term future going to look like? And, and I'm hoping that there is going to be a bit of a momentum uh, that's going to cause government to think through some of these things and, and hopefully garner some public support. Thanks. You're also, you mentioned that you were the director of uh, public ethics at Martin Luther University College in Kitchener-Waterloo. And I wondered if you could also take us through a little bit, what are the, these kinds of, I think all your questions were highlighting these ethical dimensions um, to this crisis. So I wondered if you could take us through a little bit the, the response of the government to this crisis through that lens of public ethics. Sure. And we have a very specific definition of, of public ethics. I mean, it doesn't take it that far from, from what the generic understanding would be. But we think of, of, of public as a group of individuals that get together. So we often talk about publics, that uh, our society has uh, uh, different groups, publics that get together. It could be a faith community. It could be a service club. It could be a geographic community. But these are individuals that get together um, and bring their, their deepest convictions, their, their deepest beliefs, and try to apply them to some of the challenges and problems uh, facing our world. When we say public ethics, we're, we're often talking about a situation where the existing system no longer works. And obviously with COVID-19, that's on two levels. The first is that we can't function normally as a society. So in terms of public ethics, how do we come together and support each other in this brave new world where we have to stay six feet apart, where we can't visit uh, an elderly friend or relative in a, in a long-term care home, where we have whole swaths of society that have been laid off, that can't pay bills. So that is a huge public ethical issue. And, you know, we've seen people rise to the occasion. Uh, I know locally here in Waterloo Region, 
We have uh, groups and organizations uh, that are working with the homeless, working with the marginalized, um, and on an individual basis. We have people who are checking in on, on seniors who are neighbors, keeping social distancing, obviously. But you know, there, there, there's a lot of rallying that's coming together. But then there's the, the second piece, which goes back to my comment about uh, government and some of the, the thoughtfulness that I hope is going to be there. Um, our system doesn't seem to work anymore. Uh, a system where so many of our seniors are put in long-term care homes and in many cases seemingly forgotten. Our system where we uh, uh, house the homeless or the, the marginalized in, in, in large hostels, uh, systems where we have frontline workers who are paid uh, a minimum wage that, that often keeps them below poverty. How do we rethink that coming forward? And that is a huge issue around public ethics. And I think there's there's room for all sorts of groups for publics to come forward, whether we're talking about uh, uh, faith communities or community groups or, or people of like interest to, to come forward and say, hey, the old ways aren't going to work uh, anymore. In fact, we've seen that maybe they didn't work that well in the past. Uh, how do we think about it differently? And you know what? These are really, really tough, tough, tough uh, questions, but they have to be addressed. Thanks, John. I think this brings us up to uh, the kind of central role that we've seen communities playing in this kind of response to the coronavirus. I wondered, Lita, as a family doctor, how you've seen our response to coronavirus highlight this role of the community in cont contributing to patient health and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, as has mentioned, it's a challenging time for people on, on many levels, both from a mental health perspective, spiritual, social, economic, uh, and patients are facing different types and degrees of hardships in the context of this forced social isolation, uh, whether it's loss of jobs or loss of that community interconnectedness. One thing I would say is that a reoccurrent theme that I'm noticing with the patients that I'm interacting with in this new form of, of healthcare provision is the role that community has played in their, in their well-being, that it had an important aspect of who we are as human beings and how we live our life is that interaction with our neighbors, our communities, our faith groups, our service groups, our charities, our working colleagues, that, that human interaction is an important part of, of who we are as human beings. Um, another another thing that I've noticed um, in terms of just this community interconnectedness is that there is this recognition that our actions impact the other the others. So the decision of one individual will have an impact on the well-being of a community. And we use that in the context of virus transmission as a way that that has come to play. So when conversing with patients around, you know, whether they need to seek, you know, imaging or have some blood work or come into the clinic, their primary concern uh, is around potentially being a trans like transmitting that virus to other people or putting other people at risk. Like you mentioned, people won't be visiting their family members or elders in the community because they're worried about their well-being, not necessarily their own. Um, and so that just also reinforces this understanding in our society that we do have an individual responsibility to make decisions that protect the well-being of our most vulnerable. Now, uh, you mentioned earlier on this uh, kind of heightened awareness of the need for community, sometimes and often actually in the face of these uh, sort of deeper challenges that you were just talking about. Um, so given that there is this maybe increased awareness of the, of the need of having a connection to the community, uh, I was wondering what are some of the constructive things that you hope would come out of this crisis for the patients you serve or the healthcare system as a whole? Is there something that that consciousness of the need of the community turns into, or is there a, you know, like, where does it where does it take us? Basically, what would be your greatest hopes for us coming out of this 
um, from a healthcare perspective? Yeah, I think as John has mentioned, the world post-COVID will hopefully be different from the world pre-COVID in some constructive ways. And as, as he mentioned, the way our system structure is structured currently, there are many strengths to it. So we're very fortunate to live in a country that provides health care to any population, any individual, regardless of their social and economic background, regardless of their religious background, um, ethnicity, it does not matter in Canada in terms of that ability to access care. Of course, the experiencing of accessing care may differ based on this imperfect system, but they are all able to access the care that they need. However, there are many aspects to the way that our healthcare system is currently structured that will need to be reevaluated in the context of the pandemic. And one, one, um, one aspect that I feel has been reinforced by this is the role that each individual is playing in the well-being of a, of, of a population. So as John has mentioned, how are, we, how are we caring for our PSWs who are really the frontline workers in the long-term care facility or in uh, providing care in homes for patients that require more than they are able to do on their own? How are we seeing the role of nurses, the role of administrative staff? The role of the, the, you know, the housekeeping staff in hospitals has a crucial role to play in the prevention of transmission of this virus. And do we appreciate and recognize that each of these component parts are a necessary part of a system that is structured in a way that provides care, that we each, they're all kind of the foundational elements to a strong healthcare system? And do we acknowledge and appreciate them to that degree? And I hope that in, in, in this process of evaluating and reflecting on our experience that that those roles and those responsibilities will be heightened and recognized as a crucial as a crucial element of a of a strong healthcare system. Thanks, Lita. John, I want to come back to you with the same question, but before that, um, I know you've thought a lot about the role of religion in public life, and so I wanted to ask you what role you think religion can play to build resilience in response to this crisis. As faith communities, we can provide uh, direct support through the different agencies and activities that are involved. And I think faith communities have a, have a huge role in terms of uh, encouraging uh, their, their followers to get involved. Perhaps it's going to be indirectly because of uh, uh, the physical circumstances, but, you know, to make a donation, to help out where you can, to help out on an individual level, but also to be voices uh, at the forefront when we start to have that conversation or as we have that conversation. These are discussions we need to have as a society. And, and you know, they fit with the mandate of so many faith communities in terms of uh, a preferential option for, for those that are on the margins. And I'm hoping this can be a wake-up call. Uh, you know, one of, one of the basic tenets, I think, of, of uh, most, if not all, faiths is, is, our, is our human connectedness and our responsibility for each other. And we live in a world where that is, is, is divided all the time by economics, by geography, by politics. And yet here's one case where we literally are all in this together. And hopefully that sense of shared humanity will be something that lives on after this and, and, and will strengthen our world. Thank you both so much for joining us on this first podcast, the series that's going to explore uh, the reaction in Canada to COVID-19. And you've opened up for us so many different areas of questioning, I think all representative of our collective reflective moment here in Canada that this crisis is bringing to us. So thanks again for joining us. 
You have been listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at oba.baha'i.ca where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.